Narendra Modi first came into power as Indian Prime Minister in 2014. A new political chapter in the world's largest democracy. Under the trademark orange and green banner of the nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, Narendra Modi is claiming victory. Many people here are calling this election the most significant in decades, and that's because... But his almost decade in office hasn't been without controversy. As India celebrates 76 years of independence, Modi's drawn criticism for promoting a kind of Hindu nationalism that has roots in the colonial period. And so in some ways, what Modi is part of is part of a 100-year-long political process that wants to envision India, a very famously pluralistic, multicultural, multireligious, multilinguistic place, into a much more homogenized sense of, of what it means to be Indian. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the rise of Hindu nationalism and later, colonial hunting in India. But first, Rohan Kalyan is an international studies professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. He says Modi's nationalist vision for India doesn't leave much room for non-Hindus and other minorities there. Rohan, you have deep family and intellectual ties in India. Tell me about your experience there. Sure. Um, I was born in the U.S., but my parents are from India, and they migrated from India to the U.S. in the mid-'70s. And so growing up in the 80s and 90s, we used to travel to India quite a bit just to see family and things like that. And, and growing up as a kid, I was endlessly fascinated with India, just how different it was from where I was growing up, which was in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, you know, so so culturally, economically, so many differences. And so I think I always had like a curiosity about India. And then once I got old enough to sort of travel on my own, I really took a liking to doing that. So it's really my, my I see my whole life almost as like this kind of endless process of, of trying to learn more about this really, really complicated and I think important place. You are currently looking at the political climate in India and how that is changing since it's been led by Modi, who came into office in 2014. What do you see happening, and what is the turning of the ship of state that he and his party are doing politically? Sure. What I study in India today is this rise of Modi in particular, but a, a broader Hindu nationalist movement. It has a deeply colonial history. You know, the, the Hindu nationalist movement really originates in the early 20th century. And so in some ways, what Modi is part of is part of a 100-year-long sort of political process that's been underway that wants to envision India, a very famously pluralistic, multicultural, multireligious, multilinguistic place, into a much more homogenized, much more kind of unified sense of, of what it means to be Indian. And for them, they define that in, in pretty delimited religious terms. Um, that's where the Hindu nationalism part comes in. So for them, you know, to be Hindu is, is really to be authentically Indian. And what that raises, of course, as many people have been writing about, is what does that mean for non-Hindus, for minorities in India, in a place where about 20% of the population are non-Hindu? Is he akin to any political figure you know of in the U.S. recently or currently? Sure. Uh, and, and Trump is, is the obvious one, right? Because Trump is elected in 2016 and Modi is elected in 2014. However, when Modi got elected in 2014, I wrote an article, a brief kind of op-ed piece, comparing him to Reagan in 1980. And the reason why is because what that Reagan presidency outlined in the U.S. was this kind of new coalition between the Christian sort of fundamentalist movement or the Christian conservative movement and a kind of economic liberalism or a kind of neoliberalism, as, as we call it today. And that conjoining of both business and, and religion, very powerful, you know, and, and, and Reagan rode that to power. It kind of reinvented the Republican Party and in some ways reinvented American politics, for better or for worse, I think you could argue. Modi is, is, the, is sort of the representation of a similar dynamic. You know, on the one hand, he represents a kind of religious, nationalist, conservative movement that sees India as a traditionally Hindu, religious 
country. And it's also very kind of antagonistic with minorities, right, who, who, who according to them, don't really quite belong. Or if they belong, they belong in a kind of subservient role, a second-class citizen kind of role. But at the same time, he's also very much in collaboration with some of the biggest business houses in India. So some of the biggest corporations in India who have really prospered under Modi are also backing his ideological project as well. So you have this confluence of, to put it simply, religion and money <laughs> coming together. That happened in the 80s in America and it had a huge impact on politics, on campaign financing, on you know, the liberalization of, of finance and, and economics more generally. And in India, that stuff's really happening in the last 10 years since Modi's come into power. What do you think his relationship is with America now? He recently was invited to a state dinner at the White House. That was in June of 23. And there is a courting of Modi by the current administration to say, tip over a little bit more toward our side than to China. Absolutely. You're right. I mean, you know, India is playing this kind of middle role between the U.S. and China. And, and I think with someone like Modi, he himself, as a younger man, traveled to America in the 90s. And he, if you listen to his interviews, he says that was very influential for him. He's someone who has a lot of positive things to say about entrepreneurialism and, you know, America's kind of hard work sort of mentality, right? Um, and I think he really wants to bring that to India, according to himself. And so I, I would say that, you know, for him, he, he's aware, I think, of the strategic realignment that's happened with the U.S. and China. He sees an opening for India, and he's taking it. Now, the question is, you know, is India, you know, a trustworthy or reliable ally of the United States, or is India really just after its own interests? And I think it's probably going to be both of those. I mean, I think India will, I think Modi and India under the BJP, the political party of India right now, I think they see that the benefits of aligning with America, of, of trying to attract foreign direct investment, of, of, you know, becoming a manufacturing hub, that's very much its policy goals right now. It also has geopolitical strife on the borders, which it shares with China, as well as with Pakistan. And, and Pakistan on the other side has had historically close relations with China. And so it's a very mixed kind of, and a very fluid geopolitical situation. But I think India is kind of navigating that, right? And I think uh, with Modi, what you get is a kind of sense of confidence, maybe a kind of chauvinism even almost, that you know, India, this, this new century is India's century, that India can be just as meaningful or just as powerful of a player as China or America or the European Union. So it's with this kind of new sense of, you know, almost cultural confidence that, that I think you're seeing um, a new arrangement happening in international relations. How powerful do you think India is on the global stage in terms of emerging as one of several global powers as opposed to unilateral U.S. or in the Cold War, the U.S. and Russia? This this is a fascinating question. I mean, because the world has changed in, in quite remarkable ways. I mean, from the Cold War era where you have the Soviet Union, the United States, and then the third world, right, that's neither nor, right? More than anything else, I mean, you're seeing a kind of uh, emergence of India as a, as a really important player. And I think India likes to bring attention to that quite a bit. Now, there's another side to this, too, which is that India is also a, a very poor country. I mean, if you look at per capita income, one thing you'll notice is that, you know, if you look at, you know, the largest economies in the world, you know, the top 15 of them, right? You look at India where it fits there. I mean, in terms of per capita income, it's quite low. You know, it's the fifth largest economy in the world today, but in terms of per capita, it's in the hundreds, right? So, so that, that presents a number of challenges in terms of human development, inequality, and things like that. On the one hand, you have a very vibrant economy in India that's increasingly globalized, getting foreign direct investments, selling products, selling services to the world. At the same time, you know, 80, 90 percent of the country can oftentimes face very difficult situations, whether it's in terms of employment um, and other things like that. Does Modi care about that? Does he want to reverse that? I think he wants to be seen as a great national leader, and I think he, he sees himself as very important. I think he portrays himself as someone, he's basically the only guy who can do it. You know, and I think a lot of his backers believe that. But, you know, his, his economic program is a mixed one. You know, I mean, he, he is a pro-business 
politician. And so he wants to give businesses the, the, uh, the availability to hire and fire whoever they want, to exploit the environment, to come and go as they please, because that's kind of what the global economy demands. At the same time, you know, if you look at his record as a politician, he has oftentimes neglected things like human development, things like education, primary education, things like maternal uh, health care and things like that. So some of those indicators remain very, very low in India. And Modi, of course, doesn't like to talk about that. He likes to talk about GDP growth, number five economy in the world, going to be number three and so forth. What about the secular nation of the Indian constitution and government? Is there under Modi a turn toward a less secular political environment? Yes. I mean, since 2014, almost immediately, one realized that this was going to be a different kind of government. India is a, like I said before, a very pluralistic society, you know, many different religions, many different languages. And and Modi represents a political movement that thinks in terms of homogenization, one language, one religion, one sort of way of being Indian. So that's come to odds with, you know, the secular constitution of India, which protects, you know, a kind of, you know, freedom to practice your religion. Really, it's about the political culture around this current regime. It started off as a cultural movement from the 1920s. And that's one thing that, you know, the Hindu nationalist movement does really kind of effectively, which is mobilize people, whether it's through violence, whether it's through anti-minority kind of rhetoric. And so you've seen an uptick in that since 2014, a pretty dramatic one. You just read of, of stories almost every day, every week coming out of India that are quite harrowing in terms of violence against minorities, whether they're Muslim or Christian or lower caste within India. And this is, of course, very distressing to those who have an eye on India and on issues of human rights, of equality, of democracy. And so, you know, there is fear that the longer Modi stays in power, and there's an election coming up next year, the the more under threat that secular constitution is in India. And it, it could very well be that maybe his next move will be to rewrite the constitution, which would be a much more radical step than he's been willing to take so far. But there are overtures going in that direction. You know, many people in his political movement have been very critical of this idea of secularism. They don't even see it as a legitimate Indian principle. They see it as a Western imposition. How should Americans understand India in terms of what we've been talking about? Yeah, that, it's a it's a great question. I think I think Americans uh, need to understand India is a very complicated place, a place with a diversity of political opinions, uh, of cultural backgrounds, in some ways very similar to the U.S. Right, and and you have you know extraordinary amounts of inequality as well, and and sometimes that inequality coalesces with race and a kind of ethnic kind of inequality as well, and those have led to political you know, wars and battles and, 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 and rhetoric and things like that. India is a place that's changing for better or for worse very rapidly, right? And so I, I think one thing we have to be cognizant of is both what's happening with Modi, but also what's kind of happening at the same time to sort of counter Modi. And, you know, that's where it's going to be really interesting next year, right? The, the election, the, the parliamentary election coming up in 2024, you know, there is a new coalition that's been formed to counter the Hindu nationalist-led government. So that'll be very interesting. I, I'm, I'm not really the best at, you know, predicting these things. But for one thing, you're seeing, uh, you know, that there's more criticism. Uh, and some of it comes from outside of India, too. So that's one place where, you know, I think Americans have been very vocal. Even when Modi did come to meet with Biden and, and others in the U.S. a few weeks ago, there were, you know, for instance, in Times Square, there was a political advertisement that went up trying to bring attention to some of the issues in India. And, you know, in academia, in, in culture, and in other spheres as well, you know, there are people that are trying to bring attention to some of the human rights abuses, the violence that's taking place in, in different parts of India. Um, and that's going to be important in the next few years. Rohan Kalyan is an international studies professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. During colonial rule in India, the British saw their role as hunters, protectors. They hunted all kinds of big game, including lions, tigers, and leopards. My next guest studies the writings of British hunters of the late 19th century. Neil Amin says the British sense of colonial superiority was threatened when they met a nomadic people called the Banjara, 
Neil Amin is a history professor at James Madison University. Neil, tell me about the Banjara of India. What were they like and what were they hunting in the 1800s? Um, the Banjaras were one of the um, largest and more widely itinerant mobile populations in India. The kinds of animals they hunted, and they really hunted them in a spectacular way, chasing them with dogs and with spears and all. But the animals they hunted were anywhere from deer to wild pig. And actually, wild pig was the animal that was most sought after by the Banjar community. You know, you say there were British hunters in the 1800s who were doing a lot of the hunting in India. Were they hunters from England who had come for a specific purpose, or were they more British colonizers who were also hunting? It's a little bit of both. So big game hunters would travel to India to hunt tigers and wild boar, lions even, in um the West, but they were also British officials who took time out of their schedules to go out and hunt. Why do you write that the British hunters were a little bit jealous of the Banjaras, these local Indian, you know, nomads who were such good hunters? So I wouldn't say that they were jealous, but maybe more threatened by the way the Banjaras hunted. And they were threatened by the Banjaras because they hunted in a way that was very similar to the way the British hunters hunted. And they couldn't have that. They were really good with spear hunting, and that's something that British elite British hunters were good at, going out there and hunting with spears. They were really good hunters with rifles, and with those rifles, they were known to really, in single shots, take down deer that it would take a British hunter multiple shots to take down. The similar hunting style, the way they tracked animals, those are all things that the British kind of, um, they, they thought that that's something that they did. And then when they saw Banjara hunters do these kinds of things, it surprised them, but it also threatened them. How good were the Banjaras at tracking? They were one of the best trackers that the British found when they would go out looking for game, so much so that they would actually ask villagers and stuff where the Banjaras are camped so that they can go into those camps and ask for those trackers to lead them through um, to the terrain. There's an interesting story in 1878 that Colonel Fitz Pollock of the Madras Staff Corps tells us about. And um, what, it, what happens is that he's hunting with the Banjaras and he's not having a real successful time finding animals to hunt. The Banjaras though, they're able to hunt deer much quicker than Pollock is able to. And they actually bring it back to camp and Pollock has to purchase it off of him in exchange for game meat so that he could actually eat during the hunting trip that they're on. What about the big game hunters? Did they sometimes rely on the Banjaras to snag huge man-eating tigers? So there is a kind of a ritual behind this hunting. So when a big game hunter was in search for tigers, what they would normally do is they would always get a tracker, right? A, na a, a native guide, a South Asian guide to go with them on these hunts. What they do is they ask the Banjars to track the tiger. Where is the tiger find the tiger for me. It's basically set it up for me so that like I can, you know, take an easy shot to kill this tiger so that I can take back, you know, this 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 trophy. So the Banjars are not necessarily actually allowed to have the final shot, but they do all the tracking up to the point the British hunter shoots the tiger down. You also say the Banjars had really great hunting dogs and really good relationship in terms of hunter and dog with these animals. Yeah, that was actually a surprising thing that I found. They had these dogs, and these dogs were really, the British went on about them and described them and oftentimes compared them to the best hunting dogs back in Britain. Huh. And so these dogs were not necessarily a particular breed, even though the British saw them as a breed, but they were just trained in a particular way that allowed them to be hunting dogs, guard dogs, right? And the British always wrote about them. There was even times where the British would try to buy these dogs from the Banjaras, and the Banjaras absolutely refused to sell them to the British. So the dogs are actually an important part of, you know, Banjara livelihood, but it's also something that the British very much recognize. Um, during the 19th century. 
One of the hunters, one of the British hunters, noted that the Banjaras even could tell by the bark of the dog and the attitude of the dog which game they were flushing, so they knew it was a deer or a different kind of animal. Yeah, so he's seeing, the, the British hunter is watching this Banjara as they stalk, as they track this animal, and he's just amazed at how well they communicate, how quickly the dog responds to the Banjara um, tracker's commands, right? And I actually write a little bit more about how that actually there, there's a, you know, it's so close that it's almost making the claim that, you know, the dog and the, the tracker are kind of one and the same. But it just really speaks to how well the dog is trained and how well it does the job that it's asked to do. Why did the British big game hunters think of their own style of hunting as honorable and heroic? And not the Banjaras, but they thought most locals in India were beneath them in their hunting style because they just trapped animals. Why was that seen as not heroic? Well, it's the way that they hunt and how British hunters have have hunted and how, how their hunting style has evolved over over the years, over the centuries. They have all these rules about how to hunt, right? So you're supposed to hunt in fair ways, right? You're not supposed to necessarily hunt for sustenance, right? You're supposed to hunt for trophies. And the colonized people are hunting for put, to put food on the table, right? And so they're using snares and traps where that the British see that as being unfair to the animal, right? It surprises the animal. You're not actually facing it face to face, right? Whereas right. the British style of hunting is you track an animal down and then you ultimately, they see it as a face-to-face encounter where it puts the hunter versus the hunted in this final moment. And so because they've seen, they see hunting in that way, they then kind of follow up by defining that's the proper way to hunt. That is the modern, that is the civilized, that's the more courageous way of hunting. And so everything that kind of compares against that, right, in this case, the colonized way of hunting, fails in comparison, but also functions to kind of keep the colonized as a lesser hunter. And then along comes their encounter with the Banjaras, and they think, "Uh uh-oh, these guys are as heroic as we are. They've got a style of hunting we really admire. Yeah. And so the irony here, if you will, is that they want to be the ones to take the final shots, the British hunters, that is. But they also rely on the native trackers to find the animals, to get them to those spaces where they can find their trophies. And so what happens is they rely on this relationship, but at the same time have to make it so that the native tracker is a lesser hunter than the British hunter. But that all kind of gets challenged when they go out hunting with the Banjaras and then they kind of see not only the tracking skills, but the hunting skills of the Banjaras. And when it reminds them that it's very much the way that they hunt, that threatens the kind of that that order because the, the British see themselves as superior and the Banjaras as, as lesser. Would you say the British had always seen themselves as superior to the Indians or was there a shift that you noticed during the 1800s? The earlier meetings between the Banjaras and the East India Company are more of a collaboration. The East right. India Company is a commercial entity. They're not like an administrative body at this time. And so they kind of are willing to work, if you will, with others. And as they become more and more a, a political power in this continent, then they're kind of looking at how to order the society and how to kind of like who belongs where. And in that process is when you increasingly see groups like the Banjaras othered, right, made to be lesser than the colonial powers. Why was there a perception on the part of the British that, let's say, in the arena of hunting, the Banjara could represent a threat to colonial order? Because they hunt very much like them, the British hunters worry that Banjara hunters will be seen by other colonized people as being the caretaker, Right, whereas the British hunters think that they one of their roles is as a protector, and hunting serves as a way of demonstrating this. Look at us; we're going to go hunt the big bad, you know, tigers or leopards that are stalking your cattle, right? That are making it hard for you to plant crops. We'll take care of those for you, right? That's what the British hunters are normally they, they want to be. They, that's the position they want to be in. But here they see the, the the Banjars are able to do the same thing and do it in a way that is very similar to the way the British are hunting, and that's what threatens them. You know, it's fascinating that you focused in on 
hunters in the 19th century, British hunters in India in the 19th century, you would have thought that that would be a relatively small role in the course of colonial history there. Yes. Oftentimes, you know, when we talk about colonial rule, it's it's extension of agriculture, extension of railways. Those kinds of things help the British control the colonized population. But this was fascinating because it also shows things like we would maybe think of being recreational as also being something that was used to maintain order in a colonial space such as India. I'm really stunned by how many big animals were killed during the 1800s. You write this, if I can read it. British hunters were responsible for killing a remarkable number of animals in the 19th century India. The list included birds, deer, leopards, rhinoceroses, elephants, wild boar, tigers, and in the Northwest, lions. In 1877, over 22,000 wild animals were killed. With regard to the big cats— Historians have generally placed the number of tigers killed between 1879 and 1888 in the vicinity of 16,500. And then, in another period between 1875 and 1925, 80,000 tigers and 150,000 leopards killed. I just can't even fathom those numbers. Yeah. And, you know, what's amazing, I mean, the numbers are, yeah, they're shocking, but it just tells you how much hunting meant to British hunters, right? Why, you know, they, it just tells you the, the lengths they went or they wanted to go to hunt these animals. It sounds like they were hunting them to near extinction after a while. They were. And eventually what happens in the early parts of the 20th century is that they, they start realizing this and in and, and kind of a, a, you know, an interesting move. It's usually the big game hunters like Jim Corbett, who then become conservationists, right? The ones that go and try to save these animals. So they do all the hunting and then they, and then they decide that, okay, we've almost, ex- we've almost hunted them to extinction. Now we got to do something. Let's protect them. Now there are vast tiger preserves in India. There are. The very first one is, um, is well, it, it started as Haley National Park in 1936, I think it is. But then it, now it's Jim Corbett National Park. And so there are a lot of tiger reserves. And the history is, it, again, it, it's tied to this, you know, if you want to call it overhunting in India, it's tied to that. But it's interesting how, you know, you went from, you know, all those numbers that we mentioned of, you know, um, animals being, you know, slaughtered to how right. those same folks that were doing that, ended up kind of starting these preservationist conservation movements that actually then lend itself to these national parks and reserves in India today. Neil Amin, thank you for sharing your insights on this on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Neil Amin is a history professor at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In 1765, the ruler of the Indian province of Awad was defeated in battle by the East India Company. Flush with war debt, he turned to his wife, Bahu Begum, to bail him out. My next guest studies how Bahu Begum leveraged her wealth to gain political influence during the colonial period. Nick Abbott is a history professor at Old Dominion University and the author of the forthcoming book, Women, Wealth, and the State, The Begums of Awad and the Making of British India. Nick, you've really zeroed in on the life of a woman in particular, Bahu Begum. Why does her story in particular fascinate you? Her story, because of the way that her family is kind of tied up with the expanding East India Company, you know, it eventually becomes a kind of major scandal back in Britain. This is a story that's ricocheting sort of all over the world. And in fact, you know, you can look at American newspapers in the early 19th century and find papers that are covering giving her an obituary. So this is a a kind of story that really crisscrosses the world, but I think also it's a way of understanding the kind of changes that are going along with the beginning of colonial rule. So before we get into who she is, give me a simple sketch of the East India Company. At one time, it was the largest company in the world. 
And I just read that it even had its own army twice the size of the British army. Yeah, so the East India Company gets its start in 1600 with a charter from Elizabeth I. It does build its own army, eventually sort of leveraging that military and economic power into real territorial control by the middle of the 18th century. In effect, would you say the East Indian Company took over India? Yes and no. The company makes military conquests and will do far more conquering in the 18th and 19th century. But in the beginning, in some ways, it's, it's also being kind of pulled in by Indian actors themselves. So introduce me to this woman who eventually will clash in major ways with the East India Company. This is Bahu Begum. Who was she and where was she from? So she was born in Delhi in 1727. She was the daughter of a kind of up-and-coming family of Iranian courtiers at the, the Mughal court. And in 1743, she married into another up-and-coming family who was beginning to gain control of this large territory to the east known as Avad. Tell me about the family she married into. Was this likely somebody she was given to in an arranged marriage? Uh, yes, undoubtedly this was an arranged marriage. Her husband, a young man named Jalaluddin Haider, who later on would become the Nawab or ruler of Avad, his family had uh, basically become the kind of hereditary governors of a province in the Mughal Empire, this place called Awad, and by the kind of 1740s, basically they're powerful enough to where the Mughal emperors can no longer take this position away from them. Can you give me a modern example of the kind of wealth the two of them have? Yeah, um, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, then certainly tens of millions. So, And I, one of the things that's, that's so significant about it is that it is, you know, oftentimes in, in a very liquid form. It's in cash. It's in jewels. It can be readily traded and exchanged in a kind of volatile place and time. And do you see it as their money jointly, or do they each have riches? Well, this is, this is a sort of complicated issue. Islamic law gives quite a lot of personal property rights to women, especially compared to, say, Britain or in America during the same time. Certainly, both of the parties would have acknowledged that they have some property individually and some property in common. So how did this woman eventually get pulled into a war between her husband and the East India Company. And was that a real war or a battle over finances? No, it was it was quite a real war. Um, Awad and uh, the East India Company are sort of rising powers. It's sort of inevitable that they are going to come to a clash. And a clash they do come to in 1764 and 65. And this is, this is a very real war. The company's forces are much smaller, but infantrymen kind of trained in this new European style of fighting are much more effective against uh, this kind of big, unwieldy cavalry army that Shuja Dalla has. And over a, a number of battles, the East India Company kind of systematically pushes him and his army out of Awad altogether. And it's really only because the company doesn't yet feel it's ready to kind of directly conquer all this territory that they decide, you know what, maybe it's better to put this guy back on his throne as a kind of grateful ally rather than have him sort of wandering around as a, as a potentially dangerous foe. So what sort of consequences were there for this couple after losing the war with the East India Company? Yeah, um, so quite major consequences. So essentially the terms of the agreement are that Awad and the East India Company are going to be allied. They're going to have this kind of pact of mutual defense. But the company really insists that they've spent all this money on the war. They need to be compensated for their losses. And so they impose this big indemnity payment on the Nawab. And he's so bankrupted at this time that the only person that he can really turn to is his wife, who's really kind of one of the few figures who has a lot of cash left on hand. And so she ends up paying basically the entire down payment of this really sort of massive indemnity. How does she become an interesting historical figure to you, other than having to pay some of her husband's debt to the East India Company? 
their behavior after the fact is, is what's really particularly interesting to me. Um, because what Shuja Adala does once he's back in power, he has a much kind of tighter grasp on this province than he had before. He's able to collect a lot more taxes and he puts all the surplus money with Bahu Begum. So she becomes basically the kind of custodian of this massive family fortune. And this is what becomes so contested between the East India Company, Bahu Begum, and then her son after her husband dies in 1775. When her husband dies, she's about how old? About 50 kind of late 40s. So the East India Company thinks, hey, wait a minute, you're so in debt to us, you owe us that money. Well, and the East India Company does this with a lot of different powers. They essentially set up what's kind of a, a mafia protection racket. You know, pay us for protection for soldiers that are stationed in your territories. The company constantly finds new excuses to turn up their rates. And so over time, the Begum son finds himself confronted with this debt that can't seem to be paid down, and the only real source to, to pay it down is in the hands of his mother. So what does she do? Well, essentially, she gives him money for a little while, and then when it's very clear that he's not going to kind of follow her orders on a number of different issues, she basically says, no, you can't have any more, and that's it. You're cut off. What ends up happening is a rebellion kind of in a a kingdom next door breaks out. It turns into a quite popular sort of anti-British revolts. And it seems that Bahu Begum probably supported this rebellion. There's a little bit of plausible deniability um, because it's eunuchs who are working for her who are really sort of implicated in the rebellion. She denies that she has anything to do with it, but then this is the excuse. The East India Company's governor general at the time, a man named Warren Hastings, he says, okay, she has violated the agreement. Now we can sort of figure out a way to get this money. They go with the Nawab to kind of where she's living in another part of Avud and surround her palace, basically in the hopes that she's going to, to give up this money. But this is sort of where kind of gender and power and the kind of particular influence that female elites can wield comes into play because, you know, the company knows that a kind of elite, high-status woman observing norms of seclusion, non-relatives don't see her. So they know that if they enter her harem by force, that they are going to incur incredible disgrace among Indian elites with whom they're allied. Tell me what eunuchs are and what their role was in a palace at that time. Yeah, eunuchs would have been natal males who typically at a fairly young age would have been castrated and then sold by their captors and castrators to elite families elsewhere. The eunuchs sort of kind of principal role in these elite households are as intermediaries between these kind of sacred spaces of the harem and then the outside world. And so really, in some ways, women's power is deeply intertangled with eunuchs and sort of their role as, as intermediaries. In some ways, they are partners with elite women, but there are also oftentimes moments of tension and friction between them, especially as these female elites get older. There's often sort of anxieties that eunuchs are, are the ones who are actually sort of controlling their affairs. Oftentimes, there is this sort of question about who exactly is, is doing what um, becomes a, a source of concern and anxiety a lot of the times. You write about a fascinating little vignette that happens when the head of the British East India Company at the time, this was 1849, is traveling through North India when he comes across a formerly prosperous kingdom that he says has fallen into ruin, and he writes this, The king lives exclusively in the society of fiddlers, eunuchs, and women. He has done so since his childhood and is likely to do so to the last. And as a result, his understanding has become so emasculated that he's altogether unfit for the conduct of his domestic, much less his public affairs. Yeah, so that is the uh, fairly infamous words of William Sleeman, who was, yeah, the resident of the East India Company. 
not only do sort of questions about gender and power uh, become really amplified by British colonial rule, but in a lot of ways, eunuchs had often been subjected to a lot of uh, sort of prejudice and derision, I think, by elite Indian men even before British colonialism. So one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about a place like Awad, especially in the 18th and the 19th century, is that you can kind of see in many ways how sort of different attitudes about gender, about power, about hierarchy, that each of these societies has their kind of own particular visions, but they, they sort of cross-pollinate each other. Uh, and one of the places I think you see that quite clearly is with eunuchs, who especially by the 19th century really get held up as being kind of examples of the ways that Indian rulers and their courts and their states are, are somehow deficient. And that deficiency has so much to do with this sense that they are effeminate, they are decadent. And the sign of that decadence is not only the influence of, of women like Buhu Begum, but the eunuchs that are perceived as sort of deficient men who are wielding so much power on their behalf. Nick Abbott is a history professor at Old Dominion University and the author of the forthcoming book, Women, Wealth, and the State, The Begums of Awad and the Making of British India. While the worship of multiple gods of ancient Greece and Rome has died off, the polytheism of Hinduism remains alive and well. So what accounts for its staying power? My next guest believes it's because there's no jealousy among the pantheon of Hindu gods. Atan Basu is an economics professor at Virginia Military Institute. Atan, tell me a little bit of what it was like growing up Hindu in India. So I came to the United States when, in my 20s. So really for the first 20 years or so, um, I sort of grew up you know, within the Indian context. Hinduism was kind of a cultural tradition. So, you know, obviously there were holidays and all of that. But then, you know, my mother had her own little temple in the house, if you will, um, where, you know, various deities would be propitiated. And of course, during festivals and so on and so forth, there would be special occasions. Being a greedy kid, I guess, you know, um, my, <laughs> my, what, what I remember was, the really, really good food that would happen. And I still miss this kind of sweet, uh, it was called shinni for a particular deity, you know, that's, I think it's made from some kind of sugar and bananas or whatever. Uh, I, and I, I, yeah, I, I still miss that. <laughs> what about the smells and the colors? Yeah, the smells would be of, you know, various foods, uh, the flowers, the incense, you, you asked me this question, and the first kind of thought I had was kind of one of freshness. Clothes would be starched and clean, and, you know, uh, you'd have to have kind of a, have a bath or a shower, you know, before entering the space and all of that. I don't know. There's just kind of a, a, a weird memory of freshness that just came back to me. I know. Our childhood memories are so powerful, aren't they? <laughs> they sure are. They sure are. I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> You were talking about your mother having a small temple to propitiate certain deities. Tell me about the deities your family was most familiar with and ways of propitiating. Our family was Vaishnavite, so um, it was propitiating Krishna, Vishnu's avatars, if you will. And, and what that mainly meant was... Um, in some ways, there was this kind of focus on, uh, you know, sort of this ritual cleanliness, I guess. Um, vegetarianism was a big part of that. And um, uh, this is not to say we didn't eat meat. We did. But certainly on these days, that was a completely um, no-no. And, and there are other practicing Vaishnavites who don't eat meat at all. So, so even within that, there, was, there are kind of variations, I guess. Um, and then how food is cooked. So for example, without ginger and garlic or onions. So there was this whole kind of, you know, set of rules, I guess, that needed to be followed. And, 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 and I wish I knew more about 
the entire set of rules. Uh, I don't follow that anymore. But I, I think my recollection is mainly of, you know, these rules that kind of needed to be followed. And then, you know, the various stories would be read out. And, and these were kind of stories that sort of recalled events in people in, in the in the lives of Krishna or whatever. So that's sort of, you know, how the propitiation kind of went. A paper you co-wrote with Tim Lubin, who's at Washington and Lee, looks at how Hinduism has outlasted other religions where there are multiple deities. Why do you and Tim postulate that other polytheistic religions throughout history, especially, let's say, in Greek and Roman times, died off and were replaced by monotheistic religions, but not Hinduism? So we look at it at two levels. One is kind of the nature of the gods themselves, and the other is the nature of the priesthood. The Greco-Roman gods were very jealous of each other. For example, let's say somebody's getting married, right? They would want to have to propitiate Aphrodite for the sex part of it, Hera to make sure the marriage bonds was okay, and Artemis to make sure that childbirth was okay. And if you missed any one of those, then the marriage was messed up, right? And so, um, <laughs> uh, so, so you'd, you'd have to kind of make sure that nobody was angry uh, at you. And, and also, just because uh, there was propitiation doesn't mean that, you know, they would help you because they would get angry at each other. Gods were not exactly kind of exemplars of ethical behavior, if you will. And so in this scenario, the gods battled as much as humans, and basically you had to bribe them all. And contrast that with deities in Hinduism. So in Hinduism, uh, obviously there was this sense of propitiation that, you know, um, to get the blessings of a god, you'd have to kind of, you know, have some rituals. So at the god level, there was not nearly as much competition between gods. You know, you could be a Vaishnavite, as my family was, and that would not mean that Shiva would be angry with me. In fact, Shiva would almost be part of the pantheon, except as a minor role, given that different sect. Now, for the Shaivite, Shiva would have a higher role and Vishnu would have a lower role. But nevertheless, a Vaishnavite would have no fear that just because they are propitiating Krishna, that Shiva would be mad at them. In other words, the Hindu gods were not nearly as jealous as the Greco-Roman gods. And in fact, there are traditions where, in Hinduism, where people are talking about how all the gods are kind of co-equal, if you will, and it doesn't matter. So, so, so this is sort of part of the theological development that happens in Hinduism that never actually happened in the Greco-Roman system. And are you saying that, to some extent, by the Hindu gods being less jealous, the people who supported one or another or some or others of these gods had less reason to fight among themselves or with each other? So not quite. So what we are saying is that the structure of the priesthood was very, very different between the Greco-Roman system and the Hindu system. Hinduism starts with a uniform scripture in the Vedas, right? And that being the word of God had to be learned in a very specific way. And so you, you have the system where learning the word of God, Brahman, required training Brahmacharya. And that training happened through rote memorization. So what that meant was you had to be in a small local environment, listening to the word, memorizing it, and making sure you don't ever make a mistake. The family structure was, was very conducive to retaining the knowledge of rituals and the knowledge of scriptures, you know, in kind of one space. This was absolutely not the case in the Greco-Roman system. A priest of Apollo had no incentive to teach anything at all about Apollo to their kids who could go off and do something completely different. And so what that means is that Brahminical priests were a lot more willing to wait for the future, more patience than Greco-Roman priests. And as a consequence, the cooperative outcome becomes much more stable. And so that's what we are saying is the basic reason why Brahminism remains as a relatively monolithic kind of structure 
while the Greco-Roman system is gone. You've also said that you believe that Hinduism was able to absorb other religions, Islam, Sikhism, Buddhism, in India. What do you mean by absorb, that, that more and more people came to it or that others left? Well, um, in many ways, Hinduism is also a cultural phenomenon, which is very, very flexible. So precisely because there's this non-competitive approach to, to gods, it doesn't really matter at some level, you know, what the god is. They can potentially be subsumed into the, the broader Brahman because at the end of the day, everything is one. And so for many Hindus, you know, thinking about Sikhism is just a Hindu offshoot. And now Sikhs would definitely disagree with that potentially. But even elements of Islam, you know, for example, Sufism, for example, um, it gets sort of absorbed in, absorbed in the sense of takes elements of kind of Hindu thought and becomes Indian in that sense. Uh, and even in Christianity, you know, there I, I know people who think of Jesus Christ as sort of an avatar of Vishnu or something like that. And um, in fact, there's this famous saint, if you will, his name is Ramakrishna, who describes religion as this, or God as this big pond of water. And there are many paths to that water, to drink that water. And so his, his, his phrase in Bengali, and I'll translate it, uh, is which basically means that there may be very, many, many different opinions, and there are that many different roads to that body of water, which is one. Atan Basu is an economics professor at Virginia Military Institute. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.